0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. We've heard from a number of guests since we started making the show who question the very notion of a career, trying to get satisfaction and paycheck from the same place. They say it's fine to just get a job, any job, and then do the thing you love. Well, today's guest gets that perspective, but she definitely doesn't
1: share it. There's a lot of really complicated things happening that didn't happen 30 years ago in the same way. But I I get worried about this idea of like, you know, that you are just be a widget in the machine and
0: just get a job. That's Dr. Lisa Orbe-Austin. She's a counseling psychologist who focuses on careers. Think therapist meets coach. Lisa's clients find her when they need help on everything from making a career transition to figuring out how to reach for the next rung on that ladder. Today, we're gonna talk about careers, about how to be proactive about managing them, and we'll go deep on imposter syndrome. Ugh, the word. I can't even say it without having a slight physical reaction of disgust. Because it took years for me to overcome it, and sometimes I still struggle with it. Lisa knows how that is. Along with her husband, Rich Orbe Austin, Lisa has written a book on it, literally. It's called Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. I started by asking Lisa how she got into her profession. So many of us,
1: we get trained, we have like many classes on this, we have to take externships on this, but many of us hate it um, because the way it's taught is very didactic, it's very theoretical, and we often feel like a lot of us do this for like the humanity of it, the identity of it, like those pieces. So for me, I I took the classes and hated it and, you know, I thought I'd never do this again, I just got to get the requirements on. And then I met my husband, um, who was not who was my colleague at the time. And it was his passion. It was his love. It was his dissertation. It was everything he thought about, because he always would say, the personal is professional and the professional, personal, which is a very common saying for us. And he helped me to understand that. And then I started to realize, oh, there's something really meaty here around identity. You
0: just described something that intellectually sounded so interesting to me, which is, to, if I understood you right, you were studying the very idea of a career, where, where the idea of a career comes from, how people orient to that over the course of their life, but it was too academic, it was too didactic?
1: Yeah, very research-based, very theoretical. We would look at sort of models of career development, and they were very staid, and they were, it, t- it took the humanity out of it for many of us. And so it was really about just learning the concepts, learning the philosophies, learning the testing, learning the, the metrics of all of it which is now fascinating to me. I think when you introduce this stuff to people, you really have to bring in the humanity of it and then bring in the, the, the other pieces. Right. They didn't do that. So I felt very disconnected from it. I was like, what does it have to do with people? It wasn't until my postdoctoral supervisor, she taught me how it works and how like, psychotherapy and
0: career intersect. So that really is what you're talking about. You're talking about meeting people. You're Do you call them your patients, your clients? I I call them my clients because, you know, I think patients can be so pathologizing. So you meet your clients where they are, and you're using techniques that I might think of as therapy Mm -hmm. to help them understand more deeply their relationship to their careers. Yep. Yeah, and how that relates
1: to their identity, how that intersects with different parts of their lives um how it brings meaning to their lives. I get to use all the tools that I was taught in this very holistic way, which is for me like the dream.
0: So Lisa, you said that you you had trouble falling in love with it till you met your husband <laughs> and the way that he spoke about it. So tell me about that. He he I
1: always just I really like I said I thought it was really boring. And so he was doing his dissertation on black men and the impact of identity on their development. And so I thought it was really fascinating how he was really curious about these ideas that I was always really passionate about related to identity and how they relate to career. And he was just talking about it in this way that I really connected to because for me, it was really about the passion of identity, like understanding who people are, why they are the way they are, what they, why they choose the things that they choose, and he was connecting that for career for, to me as a colleague. We were just talking about these things, engaging it, and, and I was like, oh, now I get why this could be interesting. It doesn't have to be so academic, and it's about real people's lives, real people's identities, real people's development, and that was what was. What I think brought me into it, you know, as I it, fell in love with him, I fell in love with the concept of career.
0: I love that it's a mutual falling in love. Yes. Um, do most people who pursue this path end up doing the work that you're doing, or are you taking a more unusual approach to using the skill set? I'm taking a very unusual approach
1: to using the skill set. A lot of the people that I work with and I refer to, I have trained. Um, And because we we do have the basic skill sets, but then we have not taught how to apply them in in the context of a therapeutic room. And so I have done a lot of training of my colleagues so that I can help refer other people to them. Um, And it is very rare. Like I actually got a contact today from a graduate student at a local university saying, can I talk to you about how you got to do with what you do? There's not a lot of people out there that do what you do. What are
0: the challenges that you see coming up for your clients over and over?
1: Well, I mean, like imposter syndrome was one of them. It actually is what drew us to writing the book is that we see, we see that phenomenon so predominantly in our practice. The other things that we typically see are um, people who have made a particular choice in their career paths around maybe stability and security and other kind of value sets, but then realize it's hard to fulfill a lifetime on that and feel disconnected from the work and don't feel passionate about it and need to kind of transition. Um, We see a lot of people with struggles with advancement. Like, I don't know how to get to the next rung. I don't even sometimes know what the next rung is. Um, So helping people career path and understand how the developmental pathways work in different career
0: tracks. That could be three episodes for us right there. (laughs) (laughs) I know.
1: That career ladder is a nightmare. And it takes a lot of nuanced understanding of what's happening in people's careers, which is something else I love about the field is like, it allows me to dive into all these different career paths and get to like know them really, really well. Well, which i kind of fell in love with. I want to go
0: deep on imposter th- syndrome, but before we do, like I want to back up to this idea of a career a second. We've had a few people on the show over the course of the last year and a half who have basically trashed the idea of a career. They've said you don't need a career. A career is a very 21st century idea. It's a 21st century relationship to work. It's fine if you just have a job and do the thing that you love. So you want to be a writer? Go work at a restaurant and be a writer. And I'm just curious, from your perspective, what you th- you're laughing at me. <laughs> yes, Our listeners can't can see this, but head. you are laughing and at me. That
1: flies in the face of everything I think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it just is not how we get taught the the meaning of career and how we help people decide around career. but there are some careers where if you if you miss a step, you're you can't make it up the next rung of the ladder. You know, like and so like it's really important in some places to really understand that ladder. Um, And in some places it's not, in some places you can have a much more varied career and do a bunch of things and be in a bunch of different places. Um, It really depends on what you want to do. I do understand it, but it's not the main philosophy that I use around this idea that just get jobs and then your career will evolve. I think it can, it feels like very haphazard career development practices, as opposed to you're making a choice. Um, and that choice has meaning. You're making choices even if someone is dragging you along in your pathway. I do believe in the, the the process of choice and that you are crafting a vision for what it's
0: going to look like. Do you think that any of the voice that is is raising those this the sort of critique of careers, that you don't need one, that you can just go get a job? Do you think that it's a reaction to the fact that that career ladder felt more predictable? Two or three decades ago, and seems a lot harder to articulate and define in 2020. I think that it is much harder, right? I think in some fields it's
1: really straightforward, like accounting is really straightforward, like how you get through the pathway. You know, I'm having conversations with like clients on the way to becoming CFOs, and the route is very, can be very ambiguous about how you get to be a CFO. It is ambiguous, it feels scary, and so you feel like you should take anything. But it, you, it's, you can't really just take anything, you know, I, in some cases. And um, in some cases, I think you probably could if you want to be a writer and you just need to support yourself and you just need a job that just pays the bills. But I think you also still have to make strategic career decisions around being a writer. Like, who are you surrounding yourself with? What's happening with your training? Like, you still have to kind of path in some way. and Maybe it's, you know, uh, kind of non-traditional, but you're still pathing. Um, if you want to be successful in the field, it just can't be sort of like whatever happens. Um, yeah. I also think it's somewhat dangerous a little bit. I do feel like the economy is really complicated right now and sort of what happens to people's careers. There's a lot of really complicated things happening that didn't happen 30 years ago in the same way. But I, I get worried about this idea of like, you know, that you are just be a widget in the machine and just get a job and just fit in where people need you as opposed to having some agency and autonomy about how you draw that
0: vision. So let's talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> um, as I was diving into your thoughts on it, The first thing that jumped to me was that I have always thought of imposter syndrome as something that in particular happens to women and people of color. And you really expanded my thinking on that um, by saying, actually, we all have reason to feel less than or or like we don't belong and we express it in different ways. So I wonder if you might just start by explaining what you mean by imposter syndrome.
1: Sure. So imposter syndrome is the phenomenon where when you have skills, accomplishments, abilities, credentials, and you haven't internalized them, that you then feel very concerned about being exposed as a fraud. And as a result of that fear of exposure, you either overwork or self-sabotage in order to cover um, this experience of be- fearing of exposure as a as a fraud. So 40 years ago, the concept was developed by um, Drs. Um, Clance and Imes, um, two female psychologists um, who were working in a counseling center in Georgia. Um, and seeing this phenomenon in the academic staff and grad students, and then we're like, what is going on here? And they were working largely with women. And I think they initially thought from for a long time that it was predominantly in women. I think they researched it mostly focused on women. I know that, I don't think I know it, but uh, later on, they started to look at men and they started to see it in equal numbers in men. They just saw the expression of it a little bit different. and the expression that they saw typically, women tend to to embrace the counterphobia of it. So they'll be counterphobic. They will sort of have the fear and face it uh, and do the thing. and they'll just live in the imposter syndrome constantly, where men will go engage in more of a saving face experience where they will, um, avoid the, the high-stakes and high-performance things and go somewhere where they can be the top performer. Um, and so they will typically put themselves in situations that are less threatening to their imposter syndrome, so they have to face it less often. But it means also that they typically underperform.
0: You came to this research out of personal experience, right? hmm Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that.
1: So, I mean, I've had imposter syndrome. I still, you know, clearly, I, we always say, you're we're never going to get over it over it. You know, It's never going to be done. And I just deal with it differently. Um, that I did back then and so you know I think for many years of my life I often felt like you know I was getting things by accident or as a result of like a relationship that I had developed or like it just felt like everything was not about my skills my abilities it, it felt largely about my ability to work hard that if I could put my mind to something if I could work hard at something I could get it but it had nothing to do with my skills talent intellect nothing. And so, oftentimes, people think, "Oh, if I get this next credential, or if I get this next job, I'm not going to feel the imposter syndrome." It just makes it worse, yes. because frankly, when I when I got my PhD from Columbia, like it, my it, my imposter syndrome was at its height. Um, and I tell a story in my TEDx talk about how you know I was in like one of the worst jobs of my life and being treated incredibly poorly, and was paralyzed to leave it. And I had this doctorate, and I had all these credentials, and I had all these I had two master's degrees, and I just couldn't do anything for months. For months, this guy was, was just making me feel really down and depressed. And, and it wasn't until you know he did something really awful, and I'll, I'll tell you this briefly the story, which is I was in a senior leadership meeting, and there was music playing in the background. And someone asked, what is this music that's playing? And he said, it's music to soothe the savage breast. And when he said it, it was like, oh, the lights went on in my head. I was like, oh my God, like, what am I putting up with? What have I done to myself? It was like, it was like a life flashed before my eyes. And I was like, I'm out of here. And I called my husband in my office and I was like, I'm quitting. And he's like, quit now. And so I cleared out my office on Monday morning. I quit the job um, and he cried and he yelled at me. He threatened my career. He did all of that stuff. Um, And I was terrified. I had a panic attack when I got home. But I knew I had to do that for myself because it was getting worse and worse. Um, And actually, to be honest, I just found out they just fired the guy after 15 years. So it suggested how protected he was for so long.
0: Wow. Lisa, I so appreciate the way that you told that story because I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate. I can certainly relate to being in a prestigious job working for people who were not able to see what I was bringing feeling like like even if you can step out intellectually of that moment and you can look at the situation you might say to yourself well you know another person in that situation if it were like a good person a person who we knew for sure were good at doing that job you would tell them to leave yeah but it's me yeah and the worse it gets, the smaller you get. Yep. And it's really really hard to disrupt that cycle.
1: It is super hard to disrupt the cycle because even like disclosing what was happening to me and telling people because I knew I needed I needed help and so I was telling people, but it was embarrassing. And when I didn't quit the job immediately or I didn't leave it or like they were like what's going on with you? Why can't you leave? It was so it was it was becoming like just progressively humiliating. Um, and so it feels like this kind of really difficult place to kind of disrupt.
0: So do you in your professional life now work with people on disrupting that cycle? Yeah. Yeah. So walk us through it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is so amazing to get to do that and to kind of be able to help people disrupt it. It's really a variety of things that are happening. And so it's really kind of impacting all of those things as much as I possibly can. So it's like helping people to understand how the thing got started and really understanding the origins of it, because oftentimes the origins are deep. And as a result of the deep origins, we have to disrupt some of those deep origins, kind of do some healing, do some unpacking and work around that. It's also about really helping people to watch the narrative, watch the way they speak to themselves, watch what they tell other people about themselves, how they narrate things inside their head. So we're watching all of that sort of languaging stuff. We're watching the automatic negative thoughts that that happen as a result of the trigger and how to interrupt them with a rational response. We're teaching people how to
0: take care of themselves better. So there's a bunch of things that we're doing. That negative thoughts piece, I'm, I'd love to hear you expand on that a bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, it takes a long time to really regroup those thoughts. It's like a neural pathway. And so to regroup the neural pathway in another direction takes a lot of work um, and takes a lot of intentionality um, around how you do that. So a lot of my clients will fight me initially like when I'm asking them to like do something very conscious and like do fight the rational do the rational responding and they'll be like well I don't believe it yet and I was like yeah I know uh, part of our work is to kind of work to find evidence to contradict the automatic thought and continue to practice the thought anyway even when you don't have any evidence or you feel like you don't have any evidence you know so it's really really like it's really a fight and we have to engage the fight
0: if a career unfolds over many decades of our adulthood. Is there a period in our adulthood where we're most likely to come up against this?
1: I think it depends on the context, right? I think it depends, like, are you experiencing imposter syndrome in a, in a space where you should be an expert or should you not be an expert? You know, and, and if it's not, you're not an expert. You shouldn't have that competence. But the feelings of fraudulence you may be feeling may be more about a developmental experience of kind of learning a skill or as opposed to you do have the skill and you, you have proven it over time, and yet you still have this feeling of fraudulence.
0: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off. When your clients come to to see you and to work with you, how can you tell if they're going to be able to make progress with you?
1: That's a great question. I love that question. I'm looking for somebody who I feel like can partner with me that doesn't see me as an expert but sees me as a potential partner in this because if you rely on me to magic wand you, it's not going to happen. Like You need to be a collaborator in this. And so I look for people who are good at partnering in their world, in their lives, you know, good at partnering you know, with other people in any kind of context. Um, I think that's really critical. I think people who are good at um, really being responsible for their behavior in a way that makes them feel like they have agency around it, as opposed to I have no control, things, you know, I, I, things happen to me. Like, in those kinds of states, it's much harder to convince somebody that they can get agency when they already have a sort of victimized mindset. There's a lot to work on before we even get to the work. Um, I look for people who really are sick of it, you know, Too, like, you know, are not are not just like, oh, this bugs me, but are like, it's really blocking me and they feel motivated for change
0: um, because they can see the real consequences of the imposter syndrome. For people who may not have the opportunity to work with you or somebody like you, are there any tools that you recommend to help people to start to take on these ideas on their own? Yeah. I mean,
1: my my book is full of tools. A couple of them specifically are in the book around teaching people how to rationally, teaching them how to rationally respond, how to identify the automatic negative thought, label it, and then also understand how to rationally respond to it, develop in some ways scripts to actually rationally responding to something so that when they come up, you have a, you have a sort of route or a planned route to kind of go down to contradict them. Um, We also do a lot of things on our book about self-care. We're big believers that people with imposter syndrome are really bad at caring for themselves because everyone's opinion of them matters more than their opinion of themselves and the ways that they they kind of see self-worth in their own experience. So we're often telling people uh, teaching people how to actually structure self-care, how what kinds of self-care matter, what is self-care. So like that is so important to us as I'm a psychologist. There's a bunch of activities in there that are just very much like looking at like family patterns that are important. really, I have a family genogram exercise because I think that oftentimes these things are reflective in the family system. And so I, I, I like want to get you to like, I'm using all the fun tools that I use with my clients that I feel like have worked because, you know, Richard and I are about like insights important, but action is more important. It is what executes the insight to make a change.
0: So to go back to, um, closer to the beginning of our conversation, you also referenced like a thing that you see the clients come to you about, which is when the thing that they're doing isn't a thing that's bringing them passion. Yeah. How would you characterize that moment in your client's lives? What's going on there? I think the world of work changes
1: so often nowadays that you can take, you can enter into a career and it can be satisfying when you do enter it 10 years later, it's something different and you hate it. Um, And also like you can make choices when you're 21, 22 that don't make sense for your life when you're 32 and 42. Um, So I think all kinds of interesting things are occurring. I think one of the things that I have such compassion for is that that moment is frightening. Um, it is, it is ground-swellingly frightening because it is about, you know, those, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's it's really about that bottom level, right? Work and, and paying for your ability to kind of sustain security in a home. My job is to really, in, in essence, especially in the beginning, is to create a containment space to be like, you know, we're going to figure this out. We're going to try to do it in a way that doesn't disrupt your life or kind of create some kind of chaos. And we're going to do it in whatever way you need, you know? And so you know, I've been doing this for so long, I'm, I'm really good at sort of doing, thinking about for people, okay, can you sustain a radical change? Like, let's look at the brass tacks of this, right? Like, can you really do that? Or do you need to pivot in small increments to make the change? And we're going to do it over a longer period of time. Um, and so we're talking about all those really even practical things about life that you know are important to figure out how do we make this change in a way that is sustainable and doesn't create disruption in a way that's terrifying
0: often when people get to the place where they're like I need to make a career change mm-hmm. it, it's not always the case that the thing they're doing isn't working on the outside maybe they're making enough money maybe they know how to do the thing that they're doing yeah. it's that they've sort of they've started to die a little bit on the inside. Yep, And it takes so much courage yeah. to decide that that's not good enough. And I'm curious what the thing is that causes people to open that door and go through to a thing that they don't know.
1: And I don't know if it's, it's one thing, at least not in my experience. Like um, It seems like some, sometimes it's a bunch of things. Like you were saying, like sometimes You know, something just shifts in them, right? They change as a person. The things that were once desirable are no longer desirable about the career. Sometimes they burn out of a career. Certain careers are like banking, and like they're incredibly intense for long periods of time. And then it's hard to do it in your forties and fifties. So there, there are a lot of different reasons why people sort of reach that. Something happens in a workplace that is hallmark to things that have been happening to them all along, and they just can't take it anymore. They're too much of an adult to take it anymore. So, there's a lot of different interesting, like uh, points of crisis. Um, but it it does feel fundamentally about something something identity wise, at least for me, around something changes for them and the way that that career relates to their life that doesn't work anymore.
0: How does your own path through your career change the way that you're able to have empathy for connection to the places where your clients are?
1: I've been in career crisis before. Like, you know, like I think, you know I, I didn't tell the story, but, you know, when I, when I went into my freshman year, I always thought I was going to be a pediatrician. I was bio pre and I practically failed out of college um, trying to be bio pre-med. And it was so bad um, that, you know, I remember like being in a chem class and there was a hole in my test tube and I got hydrochloric acid on my hands. And so they had to put me in the shower and do all that stuff to kind of get all the acid off. And then they told me I'm going to have to redo the lab. And this is when I was failing and doing very poorly. I was going to have to spend another three hours that evening back in the lab. And I remember walking home in a haze and laying down on the landing of my dorm and just like crying and just for an hour, just crying on the land. I think people probably passed me. I don't even remember what happened. It just, I went to some kind of fugue state and it just felt like, it just felt like all my dreams crashing in front of me and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't, There was nothing I could do. I, I did, couldn't figure it out. And I remember being in the Dean's office and the Dean saying to me, um, you got to figure this out. You got to decide something, you got to get a new major or something, but you're going to fail out of here. And then it's, gonna, it's, I can't do anything. So I remember deciding at that point I was going to change my major to English because you know I was doing well in English. And I remember going home. My parents didn't go to college. And so they really didn't have a lot of resources or knowledge to be able to tell me what to do. And I told my dad I was changing my major to English. And it was like all of his dreams went crashing down beside him. He He was so angry, yet frustrated and sad. And he was like, I can't believe this. You speak English. Like, what is this? Like, you know, he just like lost it. And he didn't talk to me for like three months um, because he was just devastated. And he thought I was just going to blow my life up. And, you know, I remember having to be like, okay, he's not talking to me. I'm in trouble in the sense that like, he's not supporting me right now. And if I, he said to me before he stopped talking to me, he said, I I must get a three, seven in the following semester, (laughs) or he was going to pull me out of school. And he didn't know what a 3-7 was. He didn't go to college. So he had no idea how it was to, how it was to turn a 1-7 into a 3-7, which is nearly impossible. Um, yeah. And so I was like, I got to figure this out on my own. I got to figure this out. And I really then just like put my nose to the grindstone and got a 3-9 that following semester and was able to stay in school. Wow. And it, it taught me that like, you know, it is possible. At the time, I didn't know about career development. I didn't know how to make good, solid decisions. I didn't know I could see a career counselor and, and figure out through through testing what to do next I just went to like what am I good at what can I excel at that's what I'm gonna do and it happened again it happened again as I was a senior in college I thought I was gonna go and be a writer and I was in my senior year capstone class and I had a professor who um, was like a writer and it was so exciting and you know she'd done all these books and and she had us writing a novella and I was working on the novella and she hated it um, she not only hated it, she turned the entire class against me. So they were 11 kids in the class, like saying, Oh my God, this stuff is drivel. It's horrible. Week after week, it was excruciating. And then I was like, well, maybe this is evidence I can't write. Um, and you know, I can't do this. And I went home after I graduated from college and was like, I got to figure out what to do next through, like, let, let me admit through a massive depression. I have had to figure figure that yes. out. And, you know, it, and then I was like, okay, what did I, what do I, what can I go next? What else, what other skills do I have? What other things do I like? And I had been an RA and I was like, well, maybe, you know, I'll think about being a counselor.
0: You know, as I listened to that story and thank you for sharing it. I also just think about the impact that we all have on each other that we don't really think about. Yeah. I think about the writing teacher who turns you off to craft maybe for life I hope you come back to it
1: yeah the book for me was the first opportunity to really write in that way that felt public in that way Mm -hmm. um so it was a very healing process to write it
0: (laughs) I don't think you've said the name of the book aloud on the show which I'm just gonna say the next time you do a podcast within the first 60 to 90 seconds you get the name of the book
1: (laughs) thank you for that I will do that
0: Yeah. What's the name of the, the book? The name of say? the
1: book is Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life.
0: And where can people find it if they want to find it's
1: it? It's in all major booksellers, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Bound. Um, yeah, and it's all in all versions. It's Kindle, you know, hard copy, you know, actually soft
0: copy, but, um, and Aud- Audible. So. Uh, well, thank you. It was great to have you on the show. I'd love to do it again. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there are, there are many, many things to, to unpack on... On the topic of careers. Yeah, I would so, I would be more than happy okay. to come back. <laughs> that was Lisa Orbe Austin. You can check out her book, Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt, and Succeed in Life. I loved talking to Lisa. I really do want to have her back. So if there's anything you'd love to hear her weigh in on, drop us a line at hello at LinkedIn.com. And I just learned so much about imposter syndrome. I hope you'll join me this week to talk about it over on Hello Monday office hours. My producer, Sarah Storm and I get together every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to go live from my LinkedIn profile. It's our coffee break, a chance to visit with listeners and talk about the episode. Is imposter syndrome something we grow out of or is it more likely we grow into it? I hope you'll come and share your thoughts with us. You can find us by following me on LinkedIn. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Victoria Taylor and Juliette Verreau belong on our team, no doubt. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And you also heard music from Paddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel, see you next Monday. Thanks for listening. Did you grow up in Brooklyn somewhere?
1: No, but like we spent mm-hmm. a lot of time there, like with the f- yeah. I, there's, there's the fire station's still there, right? The fire station yeah, with the s- like, 4th of there. July fire fireworks right in front of their house. It was pretty wild. Wow.
0: <laughs> Um, my grandfather was a minister of a church in this neighborhood oh, and raised my dad in this neighborhood, and then my dad like, moved away and raised me somewhere else. Oh,
1: that, yeah, so. we, we I was raised in Pennsylvania, in rural Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Rural Massachusetts, or like county Massachusetts. Yeah.
1: And We're then in I Massachusetts. And I ran right back to the city,
0: and my dad was like, Why? Why? <laughs>